Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and a special welcome to the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. Well, I want to just give a special shout-out and congratulations to Regina Mason and Director Sean Durant for producing the documentary film Gina's Story, The Search for William Grimes, the first Fugitive Slave Narrative, and I hope that all of you will definitely purchase a ticket and go and support Regina and see this fabulous film. Well, tonight's show will focus on the historical research that resulted in a documentary film, Until the Well Runs Dry, Medicine and the Exploitation of Black Bodies that was released in 2011. The writer and director of this film, Dr. Sean Yusey, is the interim chair of African American Studies and professor of psychology at Virginia Commonwealth University. He received his PhD in 1997 from Fordham University. Now this film, renewed interest in honoring the remains of 44 people, most were African Americans, whose bodies have been used in medical research. The remains were found in a well on the VCU medical campus during an excavation project more than 20 years ago. So let me give a warm welcome to Dr. Sean Yutzi to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Sean. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be your guest. Well, I'm happy to have you, and I do want you to know that I did post your trailer on Facebook. So many people are looking forward to hearing what you have to say. So please give us an an overview of of your research of African Americans in Richmond and the exploitation of black bodies. Okay. Well, first and foremost, I'm a psychologist by training, and I'll give you a short story as to how I got involved in filmmaking. Um. I was actually trying to create a project for young African-American males in the east end of Richmond to kind of figure out solutions to some of the problems they were encountering in their own development. And I was talking to a filmmaker, Hadi Jarima, uh, during his visit to BCU about some solutions. And he said that we should get cameras in the young people's hands and let them tell their stories. And so I ventured to begin a film camp for African-American adolescents Richmond, and as part of that process, I myself went to uh, a film camp to be trained. 
And during the process of evolving this film camp, an activist came to meet with me about some ongoing issues in Richmond. Um, and she said, you should do a film about the African burial ground. So my first foray into this venture was the African burial ground in Richmond. And that resulted in a, doc- in a documentary called Meet Me in the Bottom. Meet Me in the Bottom was about the struggle of the community to get the uh, university, um, VCU, to remove a parking lot that they had that was sitting atop an African burial ground. Now, this African burial ground was in Shaco Bottom, which is a, a which was a major slave market during the uh, domestic trade in slave Africans. Um, it was the second largest in the United States, next to New Orleans. And this place, this sacred ground, was currently a parking lot for the medical college. Again, the medical college is involved in the desecration of, of, of black space. But the, uh, the space was very sacred because another um, interesting fact about this burial ground was that Gabriel, uh, commonly known as Gabriel Prosper from Gabriel's Rebellion, he was executed on yes. this very same spot. This is where he was executed. But again, there was a parking lot there. So I began to chronicle the struggle to remove the parking lot. And during that work, many of the people I interviewed for that documentary, they kept saying, you know, they were robbing bodies or stealing bodies from the cemetery to do dissection, to, to, to do experiments on what they said, experiments, right? And so yes. further research discovered that they were, in fact, uh, stealing bodies, but not from that cemetery. That cemetery had closed in the late 1700s, before the medical college opened. So it wasn't that cemetery, but I did discover that grave robbing was a huge industry in Richmond, um, and that there were several black cemeteries that were the primary targets for not only the medical college, but for people who were called resurrectionists. These people were, were primarily middlemen, Essentially, they were hustlers, and they were in the business of selling cadavers not only to VCU, but to UPenn and UBA. So it was a huge market in black bodies, not only living black bodies, these would be the slave trade, but in the cadavers. Um, and the medical colleges fed that trade. So that's how I got involved in that project. Okay, and so you mentioned a term that maybe people had never heard of. You said resurrectionists. Tell us more about the resurrectionists. What was their role again? Okay, the the, the resurrectionists or grave robbers uh, or sack them up men, there, there were several terms for them, um, but my favorite is resurrectionists. These were individuals. Uh, many of them were kind of freelancers. But they were the ones who would uh, dig up the graves um, at the behest of either the, you know, the college staff or the students, or they were simply selling the bodies to people who were interested in buying them. So many times they would actually go to the funerals of people who passed away and scout out the, uh, the area so they could come back at nighttime and get the body, to retrieve the body. The important thing to note is that during this time, embalming uh, techniques were not yet discovered or available. So you really had to get a fresh body. So they usually got them, like to get them no, no more than two days after the burial. Because um, soon after that, they began to decompose, particularly in the summertime with the heat. So the resurrectionists were like, um, you know, freelance uh, individuals who would steal bodies and sell them to the colleges. So you, in the beginning, you said there were some people were saying, you know, they were robbing graves for medical dissection. So this is part of of, of some oral history. Uh, Now, was this very common that people would say something like this, or did they base it on stories or old wives' tales? Tell tell me more about that piece of your journey of hearing that. Yes. At first, um, I didn't pay much attention to uh, the, the, the stories because I only heard one or two people say it, and I kind of brushed it off. But as 
I heard more and more people say that, I kind of noted it. You know, I, I kind of paid attention. But to be honest, um, my, my, my first interest in the medical dissection was really about the character Chris Baker. He was really my interest at first. And, and what happened is through my research on Chris Baker, I began to become more broadly interested in the practice of grave robbing or medical dissection. But Chris Baker was a black man who was the janitor at the medical college. He was really the brains behind the operation of grave robbing, of the grave robbing enterprise in Richmond. <coughs> As the janitor of the medical college, he was really a lab assistant. And he was looking after the lab, and part of the responsibilities was to make sure that there were always, there were always bodies for the students. And so he, we have records of him either buying bodies or he himself going to rob graves. In fact, Chris Baker was arrested three times for grave robbing. Um, and we have records of him buying uh, what, what they call medical uh, material or laboratory material, which is bodies. Um, there are receipts from people um, to whom he paid money for the medical uh, materials. So Chris Baker, a black man, lived in the basement with his family, his wife and his son, um, in the basement of the medical college where the bodies were kept. Uh, and he had become quite famous in Richmond. And in fact, when Chris Baker died, his death was announced on the front page of the local paper. Um, even white people were only noted in the obituary section. But Chris Baker had become so famous because of his escapades into grave robbing, uh, he was a notable figure in Richmond, particularly in the medical establishment. But he was despised by the now, black community. They, they he was despised. Him. Now, you said records. What what kinds of records are you looking at when you said, you know, it's, it's well documented. You could tell me about him and that he and his family lived in the basement of the um, the university. Tell yeah. us where did you get these documents that would tell you this information? Well, the the, the, the medical college has a, a, a archivist. Because it's you know it's a famous it's like the second oldest medical college in the country, uh, and, and they were very crucial during the Civil War of treating Confederate soldiers. Um, and in fact, you know Richmond was the capital of Confederacy, so the medical college was a very important institution. So there were very uh, meticulous records kept. Uh, there are doctors' journals that 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 log in all the purchase of the medical supplies. There are journals of the doctors who, who talked about their relationship with Chris Baker and how much they uh, admired him and how much influence he had. Um, but the fact that his, his wife and son lived with him in the basement, I found that in the, um, the uh, census records. Uh, the other now tell that us quite... for a minute, because you found this in the records, but exactly give us the time period. When did this take place? Um, between the, the, between 18, Chris Baker was born around 1860. Um, and he died in 1921. The grave robbing, uh, between 1880 and 1910 is, is when the, most of the grave robbing occurred. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's a, a question that I'm seeing right now. How common, uh, to your knowledge, was this practice uh, throughout Very good the United States? Mm-hmm. Very good question. Grave robbing was was, was quite popular, um, not only not only in uh, the South but in New York. Um, there was the doctors' riots in New York City that was a consequence of the grave robbing practices that were going on at Columbia, well, what was then. Um, uh, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, uh, which is now Columbia University. But yes. in South Carolina, I'm sorry, in Georgia, uh, there was a, 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 a very famous case of grave robbing that is chronicled in a book called Bones in the Basement. Um, 
this university, the Medical College of Georgia, they actually purchased an enslaved African at an auction in Charleston for the express purposes of grave robbing. His name was Grandison Harris. Um, and actually, in the documentary, I, I actually interviewed some, some descendants of Grandison Harris, his great-grandniece. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Grandison was purchased at auction for the purpose of grave robbing. But now, like Chris Baker, he was also uh, very uh, knowledgeable about anatomy and was very integral to the university. In fact, Grandison Harris was known to give lectures on anatomy, like formal lectures. Uh, Chris Baker gave an informal assistance to students, which is well documented, that students came to him because of his knowledge of anatomy. The doctors relied on Chris Baker to give feedback and evaluation of the medical students. Um, So I always say that had Chris Baker been born another time, he would have been a surgeon. In fact, he reminds me of the story of uh, Vivian Harris at John Hopkins. Um, because of yes, the time I remember Vivian Harris. I was there when he when he was given his honorary degree. Wow. Yes. And Chris Baker and Grandison Harris have a very similar story in terms of their role in the training of medical students. Their, uh, and, you know, immense knowledge of anatomy but they were, Grandson Harris was, was enslaved. Chris Baker, we, we don't know if he was born enslaved, but he, he certainly was free during his, his life. And then you said he was arrested, you said three times? Three times. Chris Baker was, again, we have, we have, the, we have the warrants. We have the, uh, the uh, warrants. We have the newspaper accounts of his arrest. But more importantly, the third time he was arrested, he was pardoned by the governor. Now, grave robbing was a felony, um, and, and the, the, the importance of, of him being pardoned by the governor is that the college needed his services. Uh, although it was illegal to dissect bodies at that time, there was kind of a, um, a, a wink, wink relationship between the authorities and the university, and they knew Chris Bacon was very important to the operations of the medical college, so... Um, he really had uh, immunity from prosecution, but he was arrested certainly three times. And so how did the the whole community respond to what Chris Baker was doing? I mean, they didn't do anything to try to stop him? Well, they tried to kill him twice. They, they, tried, to, mm-hmm. they tried to kill him twice. Um, one time, the newspaper accounts say that a mob chased him back to the medical college. The second time, shots were fired at him. And so he hardly left the basement um, in, in you know, most of his life. In his later years, he hardly left the basement. Um, the two times that we, we see uh, violence was uh, heaped upon him, and I guess after that he figured out it wasn't safe. But, again, this is primary well, yeah. newspaper, newspaper accounts. And uh, mm-hmm. doctor's journals. Wow. Now, th- there's another question coming out. Uh, was Chris Baker paid? Yes. He was paid a salary. That, again, there's a quite meticulous uh, documentation of his salary. I don't recall exactly how much he made, but I think he uh, was, was paid sometimes for the bodies. He got $15. Bodies cost $15 in those days. And so if he was selling bodies, uh, he was paid for those, but he was also paid a salary. He's officially listed as a, jan- as a janitor. Now, the interesting thing about this is Chris Baker's father uh, was also the anatomical man. That's what he called, that's what he was called, the anatomical man. Um, that's what he called himself, the anatomical man. But his official title was janitor. But Chris Baker's mother and his father also worked for the college. Um, his mother was a, a uh, housekeeper in the school of nursing, and his father before him was also the anatomical man. 
But so did somebody groom in, them to become the anatomical uh, men of the community to uh, it that way. raid the graves? His father's name was Billy Baker. Um, now, there's an interesting thing that happens in the records about Billy Baker. They, they say, it says that Billy Baker married Chris Baker's mother when Chris was a boy. I'm assuming Billy Baker was his stepfather and not his biological mm-hmm. father. Um, and so that's kind of a, a mystery that, that I'm not quite sure uh, what that means, but certainly we know Billy Baker before Chris Baker was the anatomical man. And now, even there's, Granite there's Paris, so many questions coming out. Yes, so yes. so Chris Baker lists Billy Baker as his father, but you're saying that perhaps he wasn't his father, but he just used the, the Baker surname. No, that Billy Baker was his adopted father. Like, he was married to Chris's mother. I got stepfather. you. Okay. He was a stepfather, okay. not a biological father. Okay, so now you have you've kind of given us some background on on Chris Baker, but tell us more about well, what did he do with the cadavers that would uh, get you to the point where you wanted to put this in a documentary film? Well, that's a good question. In fact, I first saw Chris Baker during an orientation, when I first came to BCU in 2004, we had to go through a two-day orientation. And during the orientation, they gave us all books. And on the book cover was a picture of medical students standing around a cadaver. Right? And Uh next to the medical students, next to them was a black man. And I said... I, my, my curiosity was piqued. I'm thinking this man must have some stories to tell. Who is he? Why is he here? What's he doing here? What's his role? These are questions that began to swirl in my head. But it, it, was, it was 10 years later before I began to pursue the documentary when I came across him again. Then I discovered mm-hmm. that that man I saw was Chris Baker. And Chris Baker was the man who got the bodies to the students. And so that story became, kind of came together. So he began my interest, but as I began to do research about that, I discovered Grandison Harris. Then I discovered that grave robbing was, was, was very common in that era, that everybody was doing it because it was illegal to dissect bodies, so nobody could, could get a body legally. So everybody was robbing graves, right? All the medical colleges had to rob graves. It was the only way to get a body. And then I began to discover that Richmond because of the slave trade, was able to have a corner on the market to the degree that they were sending bodies to UPenn, they were sending bodies to UVA, and they were sending bodies to MCV. So they had an abundance of bodies because of the slave trade. Now, what happens is Chris Baker would get the bodies, he would prepare them for the lab, and even after and he would store them in, in that, in the basement in his house, where literally in his, you know, where he lived, and until they were needed, and he would take them upstairs to the laboratory and prepare them for the students. After the bodies had been dissected adequately, he would then remove the flesh from the bones, because the bones also had utility for medical training. And when the bones were done, he would then dump the remains in the well, in, in, in a pit. And it's those pits where he dumped the remains that were discovered in 1996 when they were building the consoles building. Now, when they discovered that well, the thing about it is they had discovered wells before, but they didn't excavate them. They just covered them up because there's documentation that when, that, when the college was first built, right, uh, not the yeah. new building, but when the college was first built, they found a well then. And that well, in fact, the well that, that they uncovered uh, in 96 is too old to be the one that Chris Baker used. Right? That one is seven, late 1700s to the mid-1800s. Chris Baker wasn't born yet. 
So this well uh, is clearly prior to the Civil War, uh, during slavery, and after the Civil War. So they discovered this well, so was there some type of archaeological dig, or they just saw this well? I mean, what, question. what made them take it to the next level? Good question. That's, that's really the part of the documentary as well. Uh, they discovered the well. The president at the time, Eugene Troney, Eugene Troney was obsessed with building and, and kind of expanding the university and building everywhere, and he literally, according to the chief archaeologist, this chief uh, uh, Dan Moore, Dan Mauer, Dan Mauer, who was called to go down to the site and to uh, investigate the remains that were found during construction. Uh, so when he got there, he said that Dr. Trani came literally the next day to tell him to hurry up so the construction can continue. Now, in the documentary, you'll see pictures of Dan Mauer holding the remains on the site. And you can see the construction happening in the background. They never stopped construction. Mm. And in fact, the Department of Historic Resources got involved and told BCU that they were in violation of the, I forget the name of the act, but there's an act that you have to stop construction and, and do excavation, particularly for historical sites, but they never stopped. Uh, he told them that he was willing to take the, uh, the risk, and construction never stopped. So what happened, and this is a story that Dan Mauer tells, uh, they took a backhoe. They took a backhoe and they scooped about four or five scoops from the well and put it in a pile like a trash heap and told Dr. Maurer to go ahead and get that stuff and hurry up. So they, they, the remains that are still in the well were covered back up and were never retrieved, right, because they never did excavation. They just took a backhoe and scooped it out, put it on the side, told them to go through it. Um, so he went through it and got the remains, he sent those remains to the Smithsonian for study. They sat there. They sat there literally for about 10 years until I called them to ask what happened to the remains that the university sent you. They said, oh, they're here. Wow. No report had been done. Nothing had been done. In fact, when I called them, they wouldn't even let me see them. Now, mind you, they were under the custodial the donorship of the university because the university discovered them. Um, and, and so had they been in our care, I would have been able to walk over and see them. But I was really uh, insulted how they treated me um, with something that didn't belong to them. And they really uh, they dragged their feet. But, Sean, at what point, I mean, you're talking 10 years later. Now, at what point did you, as the activist, communicate what was going on to the people in the community? Another good question. Um, what happened during the, during, the burial, during the burial ground documentary, uh, we had several meetings with the president, the new president, Michael Rao. Right, um, he came in during the struggle. Uh, Trani retired, and Rao took over. Uh, and Rao kind of didn't have a clue what was going on, um, but he he didn't do the right thing. He resisted the community's request or desire to remove the parking lot and memorialize the African burial ground. Uh, things got ugly. We had a meeting with him. Um, after the meeting. Uh, we went to the media, not as a group, but some of us went independently. And it came out somehow that, that Rao was really lackadaisical or unconcerned about our, our uh, ancestral space, etc. cetera. Uh, it's not quite what he said, but I could see how one could derive that from how he responded. But anyway, long story short, 
Rao told me that he felt ambushed by that, and that should something else come up in the future, that I would extend a courtesy and give him a heads up. So when I completed this documentary, now, interesting thing, the university was already surveilling me. They already knew uh, that I was in production and, and was uh, doing the documentary because people were, co- were coming to me, I mean, officials from the university and saying they, that, that they heard about, you know, my, my work and, and, and it sounds exciting. I don't know what they meant by that, but they already knew about it. Long story short, so I, I went around and told him it was about to be released. And to his credit, uh, he immediately, that same moment, he told Dr. Kevin Allison, who was his assistant, um, that he should look into this and try to come up with a process that includes the community to figure out what to do with the remains and how to memorialize uh, the individuals whose bodies were stolen. So that jumped off right then and there. The same day I went to meet with him, he uh, um, impaneled that, that, that process. Uh, and that process uh, has been going on since 2011. Uh, a lot has happened in the last two years. Uh, we hired a consultant. The consultant kind of, um, uh, you know, took us through the process. And uh, we just had recommendations from the community as to what to do. So we are in the midst of that, that process still. Um, but apparently there's agreement on the, the fact that we need to probably reinter them. There needs to be a memorialization. Um, I think there's already a scholarship for descendants, um, uh, for the descendant community, meaning black folks. Uh, so they are handling this different than they handled the burial ground. Well, Sean... We're going to take a quick break and come back because I want to hear more about this, but we're going to just take a quick break, okay? Okay. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Now, you have been listening to Dr. Sean Yutzi discuss his film, Until the Well Runs Dry, medicine, and the exploitation of black bodies. Now, before we went on break, uh, Sean was just sharing with us a lot of background information and also talking about some developments within the last two years. However, Sean, I want to take you back to some questions that have come out of the, the chat room. One of those questions relates to the, you said you found pictures of Chris Baker, and he was with some of the medical students. And so we'd like to know, were any of those students identifiable in those photos? Uh, yes. I don't remember who they are, but uh, they are the class, of, you know, 
the, the names are listed um, on the class. You know, like the class of 1910, uh, it has, you know, the students' names at the bottom. But yeah, that would be easy okay. to find, the students. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, I guess so. And then uh, another question is, have you been able or has the university been able to identify the the bodies? Who are these people? That's a very good question. Uh, they have not, but, but the, the technology is there. In fact, the, uh, the anthropologist, his name is Doug Owsley. Doug Owsley is quite famous because he is also the anthropologist who was uh, – in charge of Kennesaw Man. That's the gentleman. That's the remains that 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 link Native Americans to Asia. Um, he's also quite controversial because uh, there was controversy around Kennesaw Man. The Native community wanted him back and wanted to properly inter him. Dr. Owsley wanted to study him, um, but Dr. Owsley was the uh, one who did the report for our remains. And he had quite interesting things to say about not only what he found, and the, one of the interesting things was that many of the people found were from Africa. Um, and they can tell, be, beyond being black or being of African descent, they can tell through particular analysis uh, if you were born here or you were born uh, somewhere else. Obviously, being born in Richmond, which was an industrialized city, would have resulted in higher content of particular chemicals in one's uh, bone marrow. And those who, who lacked that in their bone marrow were likely, particularly adults, were likely born elsewhere. The same thing happened with the African burial ground in New York. They were able to tell that the people buried in New York, uh, some of them had filed teeth, a cultural practice that was practiced in parts of West Africa, but not practiced in the New World. They also found many of the women's remains with waist beads, uh, so they were able to tell a lot about the, uh, the the people based upon those findings. Now we also know that some of the people had particular um, diseases, and I think there was a particular scourge in Richmond at the time. I'm not sure if it was smallpox or what, but uh, there were lots of young people, infants, um, who uh, and, and 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 children who were also amongst those remains. Um, and so he also said that the possibility exists of not only doing facial reconstruction, right, to see how people look, but yes. again, that would be quite expensive, but it can be done. Uh, DNA analysis to see if people buried in the well have descendants amongst us today could be done as well. So there's lots of possibilities, but these are the things that the, the community um, group were going to, to mull over in terms of their recommendations. Now, I learned from the struggle for the African burial ground that the black community is, is torn on these kinds of issues. Uh, me being inquisitive and being an academician, I'm always for studying something to understand better how people live. But some folks simply want to let them rest. Um, and so that's part of this process as to what to do. Um, should we just simply reinter them or should we study them uh, to see and understand how they lived and how they died. I would go for the latter, of course, but these are the kind of the, the, the uh, challenges that we have in these discussions. Yes, and as, as a black psychologist, and you're standing before people and you're talking about this, what's the, the general feeling and how are people just reacting to the fact that these bodies were taken. Um, they they didn't donate their bodies. They were taken and now discovered in a well. And now it has taken what ten years before you even talked about. Well, what do you do with these bodies? Is there anger or fear or just what's going on? I mean, you said torn, but what else is happening in the community? That's a good question. I, I think at some point. Certainly no one's surprised. That, that's, that's, that's kind of, you know, the first thing that's diagnostic for me is that no one's really surprised. In fact, people uh, almost uh, had anticipated this. 
in fact, like you said at the beginning, and we didn't get into that very much, uh, there there was a folklore about what was going on at the Medical College of Virginia. Um, I, I, I talked to people, and they are on the documentary, some of them. Some people didn't want to be interviewed on film because they were currently getting services from the college, from the, from the, med- from the hospital, and they were concerned mm-hmm. that they might jeopardize their services should they tell their story on film. But I, I came across about four or five black women in their 80s and 90s who, who not only told stories about being children and being warned to stay away from the college, but they had information that I had from doing research. I mean, they hadn't done the research, but they had exact information. For example, they knew that it was, medical, it was students and not doctors. They called them student doctors. They knew it was students and not doctors who were involved, right? The second thing they knew is that they took the bodies away on a cart, right? Now, I I was really blown away by the details they had, right, Uh, that I found out through research and documentation. They had heard these stories passed across generations and had the accurate information about what was going on. Now, nobody, nobody said, right, this is true, that they were killing anybody to do experiments, but that was implied that we know that they're, 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 they're stealing bodies, but we don't know if they're dead already or what will they do to get a body. So be careful. So they didn't really embellish the facts, but they had details that would require research, but it shows you how exactly all history is in the black community. Right, and while you're talking about Richmond, you probably could pick up people in other communities, I mean, New Orleans with charity, oh, and yeah. other places where you may hear similar stories. Of course. And, in fact, you I know, mean, I recall, yes. yes, go ahead. Please, go ahead. Go ahead. I I was just going to say, um, many, many years ago, I attended a conference where Harriet Washington, uh, who wrote the book Medical Apartheid, A Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to Present, and uh, she talked about the troubling tradition, and she stressed that experimental abuse and exploitation of African Americans began as soon as they arrived in the New World and uh, mm-hmm. through post-Civil War and up until Tuskegee. And so this is something that has been going on. It's it's historical, unfortunately. The poor and the blacks yes. were exploited for medical yes. science. Yes. And, in fact, uh, it's, it's, it's my belief that, that this practice, predates Tuskegee, um, which was more insidious, more to the core of the values of black people in terms of the importance of burial, the importance of ancestors. This cuts to the core of the African ethos and worldview. Uh, I suspect that this practice probably has more of an indelible impact on the psyches of black people than Tuskegee. Um, (laughs) In terms of mistrust, of the medical establishment, right? Um, yes. Even even when I was hearing stories, I was reminded of stories in my family. But in my family, it's more about if you let them cut on you. The old folks would say, if you let them cut on you, that's that's it. They they believe that somehow if you went to the hospital and had surgery, right, that bad things yes. would happen. Um, uh, and so even in the documentary, there's a woman who says, that her brother was shot, but it was a flesh wound. It wasn't a very serious wound. And they took him to the hospital, and he was a big, robust guy, she said. He said they came back two two days later, he was dead. She said, and I'm quoting her, she said, I believe somebody needed a heart, and it probably was a white person. That's what she said. Mm -hmm. She believed... This is what she believed. Now, whether it's true or not, 
she had evidence. This is the same woman who was talking about the stories when she was a child uh, about the hospital. But this general suspicion, you know what I'm saying, about if you go up yes. there, you want. And even this is, this is, I'm talking about, you know, she's talking like the, the, the 1940s is when this happened, 1940s, 1950s, right? But even now, yes. if you follow Facebook, every other day, somebody's saying about a black body turned up with no organs in it. Every, yes. every, every other day, somebody's posting some black body that was found somewhere, suspiciously, with no organs. The young man that was found in that gymnasium rolled up in that mat, they say he didn't have no organs in him. Now, I don't know if that's true, right, because I, I didn't see the report, but, but even the fact that black folks think that their organs, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, are feeding a market, a black market, tells you how deep this runs. And it is deep, and you do have mm-hmm. this mistrust of, of the medical system. And so, yeah. you know, putting out this film, and, and we're talking about this. I mean, we're genealogists, we're studying our families, but what about people who just disappear? We can't find them <laughs> in the records. And could right, this right. have been one of the reasons why they have disappeared? Absolutely. I mean, we know about uh, chain gangs. We know about people just being taken, and we know about peonage and what have you. So um, it, it's just so much to, to, to talk about. And so what has this done now that you have created this this film and you've shown this film, you mentioned future. What, what, what is your purpose now? Well, uh, I, I'm just surprised that, that there's still interest in the film. In fact, I, I screened it recently at conferences. Uh, people are still calling to purchase it. Uh, I'm talking to you about it. So I'm, I'm really surprised that uh, all these years later, um, what's that, five, six years later, that there's still such an interest in the work. So I'm, I'm pretty pleased about that. Um, I, I'm following the developments at the university to see what happens as a consequence of the work. Uh, there are other things that I want to do at my university, and I hate to pick on them, but they have so much baggage. Uh, the other thing that disturbs me now, because there's a pattern going on at my university that I'm sure happens at, at universities around the country. But we already talked about the, the, the parking lot that was atop the burial ground, right? Yes. Now we find, then we find the bones in the well on the medical college, right? Yes. Then the, the other two things that have not been discovered, um, one is that the first African Baptist church in Richmond, I think it's the second or third oldest black church in the country, right? It's, it's antebellum church. It's, I mean, you know, 1800s, like 1810, 1820, 1830s, when this church was uh, a, a predominantly black congregant. But, of course, you had to have a white pastor at that time. This church is on Broad Street in Richmond and is currently serving as the office building of professors at my college. This place should be a museum, a national landmark, to say the very least. It shouldn't be office space, right? So here we have a pattern of the desecration of sacred black spaces by universities. And William and Mary, Brown University, and many, many others, the University of Virginia, uh, have been engaged in similar practices. And so because I'm here, I guess I have to clean my own backyard first. Um, I'm disturbed by that, and I want them out of that church. Uh, the church should be a historical marker, uh, a, um, a national monument, certainly not an office space. Um, the other thing that, that happens on my, on my campus, and I discovered this when I was doing the work on the, the uh, body snatching, the grave robbing uh, by the same archaeologist who told me about who, who dug up the bones, who was there to discover the bones. Uh, he said that there was a, a, a Quaker house on campus, right, um, mm-hmm. from the 1800s again. Uh, and when they were going to create the School of Engineering parking lot, 
they had to move the Quaker house across the street so they could pave the parking lot, right? When they lifted, the, when they when they picked the house up to move it, they discovered a cellar. Now, even he knew that that a Quaker house, a cellar in the basement, this might be a stop on the Underground Railroad. That's so right. That's what the Quakers did, right? But did they investigate? Did they do an archaeological? No. They moved the house and paved the parking lot and kept it moving. And so there seems to be a pattern of this behavior. Um, and it really speaks to the, the lack of acknowledgement of the humanity of African people on the planet. And so in doing this work, I don't think people understood how deep this runs. It wasn't just a parking lot. It wasn't just a cemetery. It was, it was the bigger question of our humanity, Right. And everybody, yes. every culture on this earth understands that the ultimate acknowledgement of one's humanity is how you treat their dead. Everybody understands. That's, that's, one of those, that's one of the few universal cultural elements, right? Treating how you treat the dead. Everybody buries the dead. Everybody has rituals and ceremonies to acknowledge the dead. People have reverence and respect uh, for the sake, sanctity of those spaces. But when it comes to black people, right, uh, there seems to be no sanctity for our humanity as it concerns how they treat our dead. And also, when you talk about that, you're seeing that it's almost the African-American community versus the developers, Yes. Because it's the developers that have the money, that they own the property, and once they discover that this is a burial site, then they make the decision as to what they're going to do with it. I mean, and but yes. there's the Maryland right now. You have the community fighting about the African burial ground. And yes. so it's if the community, meaning the, the African-American community plus others, are not there to help and support and advocate for this, how we treat the remains, how mm -hmm. important this is to the community, then they could just forget it. I mean, you're talking about a parking lot that was a burial yes. ground. See, but this, it's, I mean, it's, it's, almost, it's almost policy. For example, and I didn't mention this, the, the parking lot, the, the parking lot really was only half of the burial ground. The other half of the burial ground is under I-95. I-95 is covering the other half of the burial ground, right? Now, you know they knew it was a burial ground when they put 95 through that black community in Richmond, which was, which was, which was called uh, Jackson Ward, uh, the Black Wall Street in Richmond. Uh, this is where Bojangles, Bill Bojangles grew up. This is where uh, Maggie Walker and many, many other significant black figures uh, lived. They put the highway right through this community, right through that burial ground, and didn't even blink. And this is uh, the same story, I'm sure, up and down the East Coast with I-95. Um, but it, it ran right through here. Uh, in Richmond, I mean, Talking about the uh, the PNH and the uh, convict leasing, Richmond was really a, a huge place for convict leasing. The, the whole story of of, uh, um, uh, of John Henry is from Richmond. John Henry was in, was locked up in, in in the penitentiary, Libby Penitentiary in Richmond. It's documented. He mm. wasn't John Henry was a real person, and they used right. the convicts. They used the convicts from, from Libby Prison to build a railroad to West Virginia through the, through the tunnels, through the, through the mountains. That was that's mm -hmm. like a real story. I grew up with that story, you know, as a kid. <laughs> but that's a real story. And John Henry was a real guy. And, and there are many, and there, there are mass graves for those black prisoners at Libby Prison. I mean, it's, it's documented, you know what I'm saying? People, yeah. oh, it's incredible. It, it is really incredible. incredible. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of comments coming out of the chat room. Cemeteries galore were destroyed and paved over. 
and and it's part of it's part of your history, folks. When you're doing your genealogy, you're looking for the cemeteries, and where are they? Like you right. said, it could be on the I ninety five. Let me tell you another interesting story. Here's a real quick story. I think time is running out. Let me tell you a couple of quick tidbits that are very important. Uh, one of the brothers, Saad uh, uh, Elamin, um, he was one of the activists involved in this struggle to get the burial ground back. He's also an attorney. Uh, um, and so he took the city and the state to court um, to have the parking lot removed. The first hearing, you have to establish standing. So he had a hearing to establish his standing to bring suit. They denied him standing, saying he had no right to bring suit because he couldn't prove that he was related to anybody in that, in that, in that grave. In those, in those graves. Now, here's the irony mm. of that, that the people in those graves were stripped of their last names, as was his ancestors and our ancestors stripped of their last names in any capacity to, to make that connection. So it's almost like they're using slavery as the argument to say you don't have standing because you can't prove any relation to the people on the ground. Right? Mm. And, and yes. The, the, state, yes. the state was responsible for removing the the connections that we can make through through data, through through proper burials, through documentation of burials, to even having last names that you can trace. But they they denied him standing in the case because he couldn't prove any connection to people in the ground. Mm. So so it was it was and, and, and here's how it ended. The governor, the Republican governor, who just got out of jail, <laughs> McDonald, uh was, 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 was locked up for uh for um uh, taking bribes, him and his wife, right? But they let him out. Uh, they, they got pardoned, I believe. But he stepped in. The Republican governor stepped in and bought the parking lot from the school and gave it to the community or gave it to the city on behalf of the community. That's how, mm-hmm. that's how it ended. That's how it ended. And the same black politicians, the same African-American politicians who were saying, go slow. No, we don't have to have all that. We can we, we can get by with this. Uh, well, the persons out there with pickaxes ready to celebrate tearing up the concrete. It was sickening. And it is. It is. Well, we're getting close to the end of the show. And you know, do you just have any any parting words? I mean, they're just talking. Well, I have you a know request. that you're raising all kind of information. Uh, and you know what is the university's role in in doing something as opposed to doing nothing? Well, uh, my, my my parting words may or may not address that question, but after that, I have a request as well. Um, but I, I would say, as I was asked many times when I was showing this documentary at school, at other schools. At churches, people were saying, and usually white folks would say, aren't you biting the hand that feeds you? Um, their worldview is that I should be grateful for having a job and therefore keep my mouth shut, right? The black folks mm-hmm. will ask me, aren't you scared? They're going to fire you, come after you? And, and I, I'm reminded of O.G. Lord's quote that your silence won't protect you. But here is the question I had to ask myself. Could I look my sons in the eyes? And told tell them that I didn't say anything. I protected my job instead, right? And so I didn't want to go out like that. So you 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 have to say something where you are. Um, you can't allow this to to go on uh, to protect your own well-being because even that won't do it. So I was I was I was I, I had to I had to speak up. The last thing I want to ask. Because I'm, I'm also uh, a, I like to get some somebody to help me with my own genealogy. So I uh, would ask you to put me in touch with somebody who can perhaps um, I can I mean who's available for consulting um, because I began the process but I haven't finished and I have an interesting story of my own to tell. And are you familiar with the UC uh, genealogy group? The the UC genealogy group. Mm-hmm. There, there, there's a, 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 a group of white UCs in my hometown I know have a group. I reach out to them. Uh, well, these are African-Americans. 
I'm not familiar with them, but I have I have cousins who I have not met, but I know on Facebook who are who are from a, from different clans who are doing work, but they're not yes. in the same. Yes. These people are often the same. Uh, some of them are not from the same uh, clan or group. Mm-hmm. Right, I think mm-hmm. we may have we may have the same last name, but I don't think we're related to all of them. Right. Well, one th- one I way of course is through, through I, I DNA. Guess, <laughs> right. I know that through DNA because I'm, I'm I've, I've done it, and some of them we've matched, others we've not matched. Yes. 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 But but well, please email me information. A... My folks I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. South Carolina. Yes. That's right, South Carolina. That's where many of them are from. Well, I have a, uh, well, there's a question for you. Where's your family from? South Carolina and North Carolina. My father's in South Carolina, St. George, about 30 minutes from Charleston, a place called Dorchester County. And my mother is from Fayetteville, North Carolina. Okay, well, people are asking questions from you. Uh, but you you have a, a, a there's a, a comment here that's saying amen brother, uh, with a comment that you made. You know you can't look your your sons in the eyes or your children in the eyes and and say I knew this was going on but I didn't do anything about it. And so so many of us in in genealogy we discover things mm-hmm. and we have choices to make because there's the whole emotional side. To genealogy, and some people mm-hmm. just shut down when they find information that perhaps relates to the entire community, but they don't know what to do with it. And so, for for those who feel it is important to be an advocate, I think this is one of the things that that you have shown us that you saw a, a photo, you saw a black man, you heard about Chris Baker. And you didn't mm-hmm. let it in. You continued to do that research and put together this documentary. Because this documentary, while it's a, a little over hour, it gives so much information. So how can people get a copy of the documentary? If, if they email me, uh, I'd be happy to, to uh, send them a copy. I only, I'm only, I think it's $20 for, like, uh, individuals. For institutions like colleges, universities, or other centers, it's three hundred dollars. Uh, but for individuals, it's only twenty dollars. So I'd be happy to send you a copy. Uh, I, I'm okay. trying to figure out how to make it available online to stream it. Uh, can and, it and, go and, on uh, YouTube? Have you tried? YouTube? Uh, it probably could. It probably could because that would be a, a good place to put it. I mean, many people have seen the trailer, but have not seen yes. the entire documentary. Yes, I think at the time the trailer went up, uh, it wasn't as easy as it is now to put an hour up on YouTube. I don't even think you could do it then. I think YouTube, Mm -hmm. at that time, they had restrictions on how much content you could put up it. Yeah. In one clip. Well, even if you can do a part one and part two of it, yes, yes. Uh, Please, uh, they're asking for your email address so they uh, can write you. Okay, it's dr. Underscore Z, no D, like doctor D R. D, okay, okay D R. Mhm. Underscore. Mhm. Sean S H A W N. Yes. Underscore. Another underscore. Mhm. U C U T S E Y. Okay. At at hotmail dot com. Okay, so uh doctor underscore Sean underscore U C at hotmail dot com. Okay, yes. it's out. It's out and Thank so you. Uh, hopefully you'll you'll hear from some of the listeners who will request information on how they can obtain a copy of your film. So I want to thank you so much for joining me tonight. And for everyone else, please remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history 
family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the Research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page, and also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday, and also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Nika Sul Smith. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And I look forward to all of you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Sean. Good night. Thank you.